Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today. I just got off the Skype phone with Ronan Shamir um, so that we could talk about his new book, Current Flow, The Electrification of Palestine. This came out in 2013 with Stanford University Press. And as you'll hear in the ensuing conversation, uh, I really was inspired by this book. What Ronan does is he takes the case, the local um, production of social formations, social networks through the electrification of Palestine in the 1920s. And you'll hear much more about that context in a few moments. And he uses it to open up a way of thinking about and practicing a mode of narrating stories about the generation of social processes, social performances, social categories through um, material, technological, technical means. That's just uh, not not only fascinating um, if you're interested in this aspect of STS, but also a really inspiring way to think about, um, as he talks about late in the interview, the ways that human beings as nodes for various current flows now um, of, of data in terms of the internet, in terms of cell phones, are really bringing into being um, new forms of identity, new forms of existence. Um, it, it's really a wonderfully powerful book. So this is a book for you, and it's a book that'll be of interest if you're interested in um, ways of thinking about using and being inspired by historical sociology and actor network theory as a method, but it's also really fascinating if you're particularly drawn to the history of uh, Palestine, um, and particularly 20th century, early 20th century contexts where the divisions that we now, um, it's very timely, the divisions that we now tend to take for granted between Arabs and Jews and the spatial and social and other sorts of political categories um, that emerge from these divisions um, weren't um, in existence yet, were actually coming into existence as a result, um, he argues of these processes, at least in part. So uh, it was really a pleasure. It's still on my mind, and I think this book is going to be on my mind for a long time. And I thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the conversation and have a chance to take a look at the book. Thanks very much. I'm here today to talk with Ronan Shamir about his new book, Current Flow, The Electrification of Palestine. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Ronan, and thanks very, very much for dealing with the distance um, in our two localities and also making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, good morning, Carla. Welcome. Uh, my pleasure. So, Ronan, can you start us off by just introducing a little bit about how you came to work in historical sociology and on the study of Palestine in particular? What brought you to this field? I guess what brought me to this particular field is uh, my love for this particular period in the history of Palestine, first of all, um, the 1920s specifically. It's my second book, uh, my second big project dealing with the 1920s. Um, 
I always found this period very exciting in terms of the possibilities it offered. Um, there was, uh, it was a period in time in which you can clearly see that what eventually evolved into a, almost now a hundred years conflict could have taken other terms. So I was very interested for a long time, I was been interested in this particular period. So that was the initial trigger on the historical side. Um, over time, since my first big project over the 1920s, uh, I came to be interested in how to think about the 1920s in Palestine in terms of uh, novel, let's call it that way, novel sociological tools. Uh, because the discourse about the history of Palestine is pretty much locked up into uh, stable categories uh, that I wanted to tease a little bit. So that was the initial, uh, initial drive, I would say. So the book that we're talking about today looks very closely and carefully at the history of electrification of Palestine in this period of the 1920s, using actor network theory as a methodology that allows you to trace the processes involved in constructing an electric grid, constructing a powerhouse, among many, many other things. And so there's a lot of elements to this story that we'll talk about, I'm sure, over the course of our conversation. How did you come to this particular focus on electrification, and can you situate this within your larger research trajectory? Yes, I believe I can. Uh, I have several things to say about this. Um, first of all, for, for quite a time now, I felt that uh, sociology as a discipline uh, somewhat tended to neglect infrastructure, material infrastructure in general, uh, in sociological analysis, material um, infrastructures are often taken as platforms um, as a backstage uh, uh, setting upon which uh, social relations take place. And, uh, and I think in, uh, to some extent the fact that uh, infrastructure uh, has been neglected uh, um, was interesting for me because, uh, at least in Israel, Palestine, I guess it's true everywhere, I felt that infrastructure is a very important actor in explaining social processes. So, I guess my first, I guess that first of all, my commitment, my theoretical commitment was to try to uh, uh, contribute at the level of what we may call material sociology, not necessarily actual network theory per se, but rather the materiality of the so-called platforms upon which human relations and human uh, um, configurations uh, take place. Uh, even that, uh, actual network theory uh, um, became very relevant. But again, I, I want to emphasize up front that uh, I do not want to think of this work as 
so-called doing exonetwork theory. I don't think there is such a thing as doing exonetwork theory or applying exonetwork theory. It's really for me, exonetwork theory is a uh, is a certain type of imagination. Uh, it's a uh, uh, the trigger to rethink some basic sociological assumptions that I'm sure we'll soon talk about. Uh, so I wouldn't like to think of this work, and, and sometimes I'm not convinced that I managed to uh, make this point strong enough as an application of vector network theory, but rather as uh, uh, benefiting from uh, a certain type of uh, uh, sensibility that, uh, that comes with vector network theory. Uh, yeah. I think that actually comes across really clearly in the book, and I think at um, at one point in the introduction, the introduction makes clear that you're not treating actor network theory as a theory, but rather as a kind of a method or a toolbox or a sensibility. Um, and, and it really, the, the rest of the chapters too, and I just want to state this for readers, they really engage very intimately with that and take us through um, the, just the processes of this methodology and the, the, the ways that this sensibility generates a different kind of story than we would generate anyway in, in great detail and in really fascinating detail. So this is not the kind of book, and I, I want to make this clear because there are a lot of books out there like this. Right. This is not the kind of book where the introduction talks about actor network theory and then the rest of the study just proceeds to do what it would do anyway. This is a book that really deeply orients or it uses actor network theory to orient us to just a very different way of producing an archive and telling a story than would be possible um, otherwise. So I think that usually works really well, at least from my experience um, as, uh, as one reader of the text. Yeah. Uh, I would add to that that uh, the almost intuitive way to think about um, an electric grid is to think uh, either uh, what are the forces uh, that uh, bring together, allow, or produce an electric grid, or, or sometimes even at the same time, what are the effects of electrification? What are the effects of an electric grid? Now, I'm, 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 I'm dealing with these two questions throughout the book, but I'm trying to ask it a, a third question. Uh, and the third question is, uh, what is an electric grid? Uh, without assuming that we can answer this question, by identifying the actors or forces that are, so to speak, behind it, on the one hand, and without immediately trying to uh, say something about the effect, but really taking a patient look at what does it take to, uh, uh, to bring together an electric grid. And I think here, the basic intuition of economic theory uh, has been very influential. That uh, I struggle in terms of how to uh, 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 explain it, uh, but but the idea is that I think is that uh, the assembly of an electric grid is an assembly of a social. It is not driven by social or not 
and it is not only produces social, but it is in itself a social event or process, the coming together of all kinds of actors, subjects, objects. Uh, and I'm trying to I'm trying to follow this. Uh, admittedly, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. Uh, uh, slippages are are uh, around every corner. Uh, underneath every electric pole, there is the possible slippage into either into the social that drives it or the social which is the effect of it. Uh, but I, I, I know no better way to uh, to do it than try to write, try to write, you know, so. And I think um, the uh, the introduction of the book actually lays out really, really clearly and really explicitly what the argument is, or, or one way of stating the argument that um, emphasizes what you were just saying. And I'll just read this out. It's very short because it's, it's really clear, and I think it's helpful to have this clear for listeners right at the beginning. So you say that the argu- argument of the book is that electrical connections participate in processes of group formation. They take an active part in the performance of social symmetries. They shape areas and regions and other spatial formations. They actively assemble, sustain, and enable taken-for-granted categories and dichotomies such as the private and public spheres, and I'll add there are lots of other um, dichotomies and categories um, and group identities like ethno-national, for example, identities that you're showing um, these electric grids and processes of electrification really bring into being. So this is a very, very different way of treating and understanding history as um, in terms of context than I think a lot of people um, use in their studies, and I think it's a really productive and a really important um, engagement and a, a kind of critique of the way we typically think about historical context and the way we think about um, these other sorts of entities as stable individuals that form a ground on which other things happen. You're really showing the, the ways that these processes produce that which we take for granted. So the chapters um, go on to, to, to take us into these processes and to show this um, in very intimate detail. And one of the, um, before I ask you another question, I'll also just um, state um, straight up, the making of politics, the making of distinct ethno-national groups through and by means of electrification is a really important part of this study. So you say, crucially, instead of privileging the primacy of Jewish-Arab relations in understanding electrification, you're going to examine how differences between Jews and Arabs were performed and enacted through material process of laying out cables and electrical poles. Okay, so I think this is really important to get out um, right at the beginning of our conversations that listeners can understand the details of how this is going to play out and how this is going to be performed later. Okay, Um, so one of the really interesting things, not interesting, but um, more strongly put, really 
useful and fascinating ways that you go about um, showing us the story and telling the story is through your use of sources, your use of source material. So can you tell us um, just a little bit about the nature of your sources? What kinds of materials were you working with that allowed you to um, recreate or rather um, take us into these processes as they were forming these groups and spaces and identities? Yes, uh, you're asking a painful question, and I'll explain in a minute. Uh, I had two uh, main uh, sources, uh, two archives. One in Israel, the archives of the Israel, what they call the Israel Electric Company, used to be called Palestine Electric Corporation, and the British uh, National Archives in Kew in London. <laughs> now, what immediately captured my attention when I uh, started working on this project was the uh, very large uh, quantity of non-textual materials, maps, graphs, tables, drawings, um, photographs, uh, all kinds of visual representations that obviously were taking, uh, had uh, a very important role in the uh, ability to uh, uh, put together an electric grid. Now, the, the, the strange thing about it was that, and you can, uh, um, this was especially uh, evident in the Israeli archive, is that uh, the archival work, the, the people who archived the materials tended to treat the non-textual representations as technical and therefore not very important in terms of uh, uh, in historical terms. So a lot of my work had to do with trying to trace the non-textual representations because they were not classified and categorized in the archival materials. Um, some of them, unfortunately, uh, were also destroyed. They could find letters. Uh, for example, uh, a letter from an electrical engineer uh, to a municipal uh, official saying, we are using MEPC3, but they could not locate MEPC3, because the MEPC3 obviously were not uh, considered uh, uh, important from the point of view of the people who were busy archiving the material. So I was really chasing non-textual representation because I understood that these representations were not only representing some reality of the, on the ground, but were actually very important agents in allowing uh, the construction of the uh, of the grid. The map is not only here a representation of something, but actually makes a difference. It creates a reality. So that was a very uh, uh, fascinating process because a lot of what I understood about the process stemmed from this. Uh, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, it was very difficult to reproduce many of the non-textual representations that I found in print because of their quality, because it was too expensive, uh, and other, let's call it editorial considerations that uh, uh, presumably have, have nothing to do with, uh, uh, with the uh, sociological or historical writing, but it was a very vivid lesson for me how 
production considerations are also agents years later in uh, uh, allowing or disallowing uh, uh, um, the reconstruction of the process. So uh, I say it's painful because in a perfect world, this book would have contained by far many more non-textual representations and by far less words. Uh, so this is why it's painful. It's, uh, it brought me to think that maybe in uh, uh, future projects I would like to rely more and more upon uh, such non-textual representations such as photographs and, uh, and maps. So that's a long answer to your question. Thank you. No, that's actually, it's really interesting and really helpful um, to hear that. And, and I'll say for listeners, it's the um, true to the spirit of what you just said, the experience as a reader of the book is very much um, an experience of the non-textual material, not as mere representations or mere um, illustrations of what's going on, but really is an intimate part of the argument. I think at one point in one of the chapters, you bring us into the context by not just introducing a photograph of the processes that you're describing as they're being enacted by pointing us to the shadows of the cameraman and um, his crew that you can see in the photograph as a way of, um, I think, helping us visualize um, in another way the reality of the different um, kinds of processes and identities and actors that are involved in the story. So, um, so yes, but it's really interesting to hear about this in terms of process. Yeah, I would add that the, the, the photograph you refer to, one of the one of those who survived into the book, was part of a, a whole album of about two hundred photographs mm. uh, that were taken by uh, a photographer that was uh, hired by the electric company to document the process of constructing the first power station and the first grid. Uh, I found it almost accidentally, because this album, which was in the National Archives in London, uh, containing all these original uh, photographs, uh, was classified under a different uh, uh, file, different name. I almost stumbled upon it accidentally. It was, wow. it, it was a gold mine. Never, uh, um, no one ever saw, for the last 50, 60 years or so, never, no one ever looked at this. Uh, Album and it, it, uh, uh, the cover of the book also is uh, a photograph taken from this album. And uh, for me, it was also exactly as you said, it's not only representing the process, but we could see how uh, documenting the process in real time by a solicited photographer is part of the process, it's not external uh, to the process. So Excellent. Thank you. So as a way to bring um, listeners into the context of this electric company, let's back up a little bit and start um, by introducing the context that you do in the first chapter. So I'll say a little bit um, uh, about the structure of the book just to let listeners know where we are. The book, um, even though this isn't made explicit in the table of contents, you describe the structure of the book in really careful 
terms in the introduction, there are basically two parts. There's a, a part one, which constitutes chapters one and two, and that explores electric supplies for light, and it looks at flows of electric current to street lights, to private consumers who are lighting their homes and businesses, among other things. And there's a part two <coughs> book that looks at electric supply power. Um, this is chapters four and five, and those chapters look at the attachment or not of the electric grid to railways, to industry, and to agriculture. And in the middle there, there's a third, there's a chapter three. And this is important because that chapter acts as a kind of fulcrum between those two parts. And also it's the only chapter that does not foreground some um, element of the processes of creation of Jewish-Arab relations in relation to the analysis of the chapter. Um, and so you're very explicit about um, identifying that chapter as the one where ethno-national um, uh, sort of processes are not the focus. Okay, so we let's look a little bit at the first part of the book, which is the first couple of chapters. Now, chapter one introduces us to one of the main figures um, who we're going to see, especially in this first part of the book, but really throughout. And this is um, a man named Pinhas Rutenberg. He's a Jewish entrepreneur. He has the support of Zionist institutions and money, and he gets an exclusive license to electrify Palestine. This happens as a result of a concession um, that is authorized to him by the British government um, in terms of, um, in the context of indirect rule by Britain. So can you bring us into um, the story in this part of the book by telling us a little bit about Rutenberg and this, uh, the importance of the use of concession um, as, a, as a way to understand um, the, the, the role of Britain and indirect rule of Britain in shaping this part of the story? Yeah, okay, we'll try to do it uh, briefly. Uh, the year is uh, 1921, it's just uh, uh, it's the time when British rule over Palestine switches from uh, military occupation, military rule, uh, in the uh, aftermath of World War uh, One. Um, uh, a transition from military rule to civilian rule. Um, uh, in the context of this civilian rule, the first High Commissioner to Palestine is uh, a, a man uh, very important uh, for understanding the, the story by the name of Herbert Samuel, who's the first commis High Commissioner. Uh, and one of the first uh, acts of the civil government, the British civil government, is to uh, uh, grant uh, Rutenberg uh, the concession for the electrification of Palestine and to be exact, Palestine and Transjordan, what is today the Kingdom of Jordan. So he gets uh, uh, um, uh, an exclusive uh, license, as you said, to Palestine, the area safe for Jerusalem, which is a different story that I uh, recount in the book that I will leave aside now. Uh, the, the so-called political context of how it came about that the British decided to grant Rutenberg the concession uh, has been pretty well researched by uh, prior uh, uh, scholars. Uh, and uh, I am not going into this story again, uh, particularly uh, a historian called uh, Elie Chantier did a marvelous job 
explaining how it came about that the British decided to run Rutland as a concession. Um, but uh, okay. it was a process that was decided between Zionist organizations, the, the High Commissioner Herbert Samuel, and the then Secretary for the Economies, uh, Winston Churchill. Um, it's important to remember this because once you allow for this story to take the front stage, the story of the electrification of Palestine is pretty straightforward. Here you have uh, 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 um, a newly established colonial government, legally and officially committed to the uh, idea of the Jewish national home in Palestine, uh, coming together with Zionist institutions uh, and uh, unleash a process of uh, development, so to speak, and that's the language that they use, the economical development of Palestine as means for facilitating a Jewish national home. And once you take this story as, uh, as a package, there's no story. Electrific electrification becomes one of the uh, consequences and, uh, um, of a political uh, arrangement. Okay, so part of the exercise of the book is to try to say, well, no, I do not want to take it as um, a fait accompli in the sense that electrification is just one of the derivatives of forces that were there already uh, acting in several ways, including elect uh, electrification. And if you want to, if you want to understand something about electrification, uh, please bother yourself with, with this political alliance between the Jewish Jewish institutions and the British government, and, and the story is there. Um, and my uh, and this is really a methodological issue that I uh, say. Let let's see what happens if we do not read the story like this, not in the sense that it is not true, but in the sense that it then transforms material processes like electrification and construction of infrastructures just into uh, neutral, from a sociological point of view, neutral process, the effect of which can be predicted by identifying the drivers behind it. So it turns the process itself into uh, 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 a transparent uh, venue or channel that sociologists have nothing to say about. And the exercise of this book is to say, no, let's bracket it. We are not ignoring, I'm not ignoring uh, the story so-called behind it, but I want to give agency, or at least I want to consider what happens if we give agency to the process and not and, and not treating it as sociologically neutral, that's the methodological. I, I have no better word. It's a methodological ex exercise, uh, of course, without any pretension that this is better or revealing a higher truth, but really a methodological exercise to see what happens if we do it. And I think, uh, or at least I'm trying to make a convincing case. 
that we can learn something from the process. That the process itself holds some uh, keys uh, that may be uh, revealing for understanding uh, sociological phenomena. That's right. And, and this was actually one of the um, really exciting things about the book is that the first chapter, again, at least in my experience of it, it's not taking, it's not treating political context as already existing. It's taking us through the process by which political context was assembled as an entity. And it does this by framing, um, just to kind of lay this out for listeners, by framing what's going on here in terms of uh, a look at circuits of knowledge, information, documents, and plans. And so it takes us through, um, or it it shows us and it takes us into the flows through two circuits. The first circuit is a circulation of documents, letters, and other materials between London and Jerusalem as Rutenberg is trying to secure the concession. And it shows us how um, political context kind of emerges and is formed through this circuit um, as a kind of assemblage, right? And it starts to come to be understood in the context you're looking at as a valid explanation for technological change. It also shows us the production of the idea of Arab agitation kind of as an entity. So at some point as we're following you and you're helping us, um, sort of guiding us through the flow of this first circuit, there's a stoppage in the first circuit about concerns over local knowledge. And again, this is a concept that emerges from these flows rather than pre-existing them. And this brings us into the second circuit of materials that are produced by this idea of local knowledge. And this is a worry that electric supply by means of this particular river wouldn't be sufficient to also produce power for industry. And so um, this resolves itself at the end of the day into this contract um, that Rutenberg gets. But it's really, really fascinatingly um, an, an example of and, and a way of showing us and taking us into what it might mean to actually do this kind of methodology. And it really transforms what you think about when you think about um, what kind of thing political context is and where and when it emerges. I think, uh, may I interrupt? Yes. I I think, uh, Carla, maybe for the benefit of our listeners, I try to uh, retell the story that I tell in chapter one in in, in like three, four minutes. Okay. That it will become clearer what we are talking about. So I'll, uh, I'll tell a story. Okay, okay, sure, sure. Okay, because I think maybe it can work nicely uh, in terms of what we were talking about before. So the story of chapter one goes like this. So Rutenberg gets this concession and he establishes a company called the Jaffa Electric Company. And the terms of the concession stipulate that, he, that the electric company should construct a hydroelectric power station on the Uja River, which is a very, uh, not a very big river that runs north of uh, Jaffa and then Tel Aviv. Um, and that's the uh, legal contract, okay? Uh, the contract stipulates the time, uh, the date by which the, this hydroelectric station uh, should become operated. Uh, the contract stipulates what type, what to whom electricity should flow, and agriculture, street lighting, etc., etc., uh, and uh, and uh, 
a year later, it becomes clearer that Rutherberg does not build a hydroelectric station on the Uja River, but instead is building a fuel-generated, uh, diesel-generated uh, uh, power station uh, in a completely different place, in a kind of uh, twilight zone between Jaffa and Tel Aviv, uh, somewhere between the, uh, the two uh, cities or towns, Tel Aviv is very small at the, at the time. Now, any way you look at it, it's a breach of the, con of the concession, and such a fundamental breach that it could have been used to abolish the concession altogether. Okay? Now, people before me noted this change of technology from one technology to another and from one location to another. And uh, there is a recurrent explanation in the literature about why it happened. And the explanation is that Arab landowners in the area where the hydroelectric station should have uh, been built uh, uh, either refused to sell their land or asked for unreasonable prices. So Rutenberg had no choice but to relocate the station. So that's the official story. So the official story or the official history or, or however we would like to call it, or the recurrent story is that here we have a change of plan brought about by political circumstances. Okay? That's what we call today, uh, uh, now, in, in, in what you said. This could be discerned from tracing the documents, letters, cables, telegraphs that ran between uh, Jerusalem and London. We cannot build the station there because of Arab agitation, because uh, 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 because Arab landowners won't sell the land. And uh, what is traceable on this circuit of uh, uh, exchanges between London and Jerusalem was pretty much adopted uh, by uh, Latter-day historians. And what I did, and uh, I think this is what is relevant for maybe for science and technology studies, I, I, I wanted to trace the technical process, the tech, the, or the so-called technical process of relocating uh, 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 the, the powerhouse, the power station, and what clearly emerged was that the considerations were so-called purely technical, that they had nothing or very little to do with the so-called political context. When Rutenberg started uh, planning the hydroelectric station, German engineers from in Berlin very quickly told him that the project is um, unrealistic, that the hydroelectric power that uh, uh, the company wanted to generate was insufficient and, 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 and the project was a no-go. So the decision to switch the station was technical, but the reasoning, and this you can trace on the Berlin circulation of exchanges and letters, but they were translated into political considerations on the other surface. So I think it's a very nice example or lesson for sociologists that to look at the so-called non-social, the so-called technical aspects of the process in order to make sense of what is going on. So this is really as short as I could be in, in telling the story. Thank you so much. And I think that makes it, uh, that makes it really clear. 
So as we move very briefly um, into the next chapter, you extend this kind of attention to and sensitivity to um, the, the new kinds of stories that can emerge from um, taking a very different approach to the methodology of storytelling by taking us into the ways that the electric grid actively shaped the boundaries between Tel Aviv and Jaffa, in part by assigning each a different mode of attachment to electric current. And so here, um, you're, you're telling us part of the story that shows the ways that electricity and wired electricity is connecting disparate, disparate elements, is distinguishing between wired and unwired areas, is allowing comparison between kinds of users, and is actually kind of helping produce categories of consumption like public and private. So you take us specifically into the, into the um, circumstances of grid expansion in Tel Aviv and Jaffa. Now, whereas in Tel Aviv, the electric grid is expanding in part through orders um, that are coming from the local authority, in Jaffa, it's really different. Instead, the grid is expanding through relations between the company and individual consumers. And these are very different ways of generating the electric grid. And this actually, uh, this difference in part um, helps enact a divide between Arabs and Jews. This is a very different way of understanding this context. So um, can you tell us, can you say a little bit about this? Because this seems to be another really fundamental contribution that the book is making. Uh, yeah, sure. It again takes us into the historical details of, uh, uh, of Jaffa and Tel Aviv. Okay, uh, again, very briefly, in Jaffa is, uh, in the 1920s, is a relatively big town, a big city, by far bigger than Tel Aviv. Uh, and Tel Aviv is only at the beginning of the process that would eventually emerge into becoming uh, really a separate uh, city, a separate town. Um, when you look, when you don't adopt a priori, the categories of the Jewish city and the Arab city, and you look at what went on from the point of view of the wires, so to speak, uh, there was no doubt that electrifying Jaffa was by far more important than electrifying Tel Aviv, simply because Jaffa was the uh, bigger city and uh, most uh, if not all businesses by the beginning of the 1920s were located in Jaffa. So, of course, it, it did not make sense uh, not to wire Jaffa. And what you see indeed is that uh, a development of a grid that does not recognize, or at least, yeah, that does not recognize any ethnic or geographical boundaries between Jaffa and Tel Aviv. Um, and you see the process beginning with a, let's call it a genuine commercial effort to electrify whatever wants to be electrified, uh, or to wire whatever uh, uh, seeks wiring. But in the process, what I identify are several, uh, let's call them uh, other processes that eventually create, I think I call it, uh, uh, two regions on the same grid. You have one electric grid 
But what you see is, first of all, what I, I could see, and this is again uh, apropos what we talked about textual representation, because I could find very little traces of it in textual material. What you could see is that you look at a, at a, at a map, at a, a map of the corporation of electric poles, and then you see that there are numbered, each electric pole is given a number, and the numbers change when you move from Tel Aviv to Jaffa. It's the same grid, it's the same wire, there's no material stoppage, but at one point, what is TA20 becomes J40, okay? So you can really see how, for some reason, that at that point I could not see, uh, work out, you can see how the, the actual uh, serializing the electric poles creates a border, creates a line that separates Jaffa from Tel Aviv on the same grid. And it took me some time to figure out what went on. And what went on had to do with uh, what we would nowadays call the business model uh, of how to electrify an area. A business model that, by the way, that was not unique to Palestine. A business model that said Rather than to chase individual consumers, let us, us meaning the electric company, let us contract municipalities, create a grid for the municipality according to their needs, and then extend the grid when the municipality asks for extensions. And this model worked in Tel Aviv, but it did not work in Jaffa. In Jaffa, a different model came into action, because the Jaffa municipality was reluctant to contract uh, the electric company and for so-called political reasons. So what you had were, was that in Jaffa, the electric company went after individual consumers without the interference of the municipality, even with the uh, uh, active help of the municipality, but uh, a, a different business model evolved. Now, the very fact that there were two separate business models acting on the same grid is a nice illustration of, uh, let's call it, material separation. Uh, a process of material separation. One area works like this, another area works like this. So, uh, I'm trying to describe such processes, how eventually they evolve they, they, they laid the foundation for what years later would become also what I call the separatist mentality. Okay, so I, I, try, I try to trace the process on the material level of this uh, political separation. Thank you so much. Um, now, after that, this, this uh, set of two chapters constitutes the first part of the book. And then we come to this fulcrum chapter, this chapter three. What I'm going to do, um, rather than asking you to talk too much about it, is just to briefly um, recapitulate what's happening here. And then we can move on to the second part, not because I don't want to talk about it with you for an hour, um, but purely in the interest of time. So what's happening here? 
in chapter three looks at the process by which the electric grid becomes a potent social force. And it does this by using humans as contact points, as you put it here. So this chapter explains in really fascinating detail how um, the maintenance of and the process of maintaining streetlights creates new dividing lines within the city of Tel Aviv. And it looks very closely and carefully at current meters, so instruments, um, current meters. It looks at the ways that they importantly <coughs> standardized electric energy me measurements, um, which was really important in establishing the identities and relations and, and the social groups um, that emerge from this context. It also produced the ability to maintain asymmetry among consumers that was important. And finally, and crucially, these meters also helped produce a boundary between public and private spheres. Um, it, it's actually probably worth saying a little bit about that because that is, again, such an important part of this. So would you mind just briefly saying a little bit about this idea of the meter creating a boundary between public and private spheres? How did that happen? Yeah, right. Uh, in general, Chapter 3 is pretty ambitious. I try to make, uh, to advance some, uh, some uh, uh, points that, uh, as you mentioned before, have go beyond the specific issue of Arabs and Jews and to look at, uh, uh, to look at uh, an electric grid as, a, as, a, as an actor, as a social actor. Uh, the idea, and this idea, I, I believe I managed to uh, stay consistent throughout the book, is really not to, it's, re, it, it, it's pretty basic. It's the idea that uh, all our categories, uh, social categories and distinctions, must constantly be performed in, in multiple ways in order to, to be. That they do not, they, they never stay there as, as forces that once stabilized, they just work from, uh, with, uh, with inertia. And uh, this holds not only for Arabs and Jews, it also holds for what we call public and private, or the distinction between the public and the private. And what I, uh, uh, and, and, and what I try to do, or part of what I do in this chapter, is to focus upon the uh, electric meter, this uh, small device that we still use uh, in order to measure our uh, uh, electric consumption. Uh, first, I show how the electric meter was very important in, in, in the process of electrification, uh, important as an object, important as a legal uh, instrument, important, uh, uh, but uh, first and foremost, important in uh, establishing a legal, formal distinction between what's called the general distribution network, the so-called let's call it public sphere, and individual consumers. Uh, it plays out in many ways, but to put it in one sentence, responsibility for electricity shifts beyond the electric meter from the electric company to individual consumers. So what I highlight, first of all, is that electric meter is not only a technical device for measuring consumption, but a very important instrument in drawing a boundary um, where the public uh, distribution network uh, stops and the individual consumption, whether for commercial or, or residential uh, purposes, 
begins in terms of responsibilities, in terms of the, the who is uh, licensed to uh, deal with the wires, etc., etc. Once we understand this, and once I show this, I show also how it is within the, the, the so-called private sphere that the current meter or the electric meter is very important because it allows for the production of knowledge about differential consumption. So you can begin to create categories of high consumption, mid-consumption, low consumption, industrial consumption, residential consumption, uh, which in turn become social categories. Uh, uh, it's a form of, uh, of, of, of creating, of establishing uh, stratification and distinguishing between different classes of consumers. Uh, so I think I show how the current meter is an important agent both in creating or performing the public and the private and in allowing for the production of, of, of uh, uh, social categories of, uh, of differentiation, so to speak. So that's, that's roughly half of the chapter, I think. Uh, I would like to add another thing, because that's why uh, this chapter is important for me. Uh, it's ambitious. This chapter is ambitious in the sense that uh, and I hope some readers uh, would think upon it, that I'm trying to suggest that the way we are connected and the way we belong and the way that we are active agents on the electric grid can maybe can tell us something also about present type of networks, about the internet, about uh, mobile uh, phone networks, uh, Etc. Because in this chapter, as you said, I'm trying to. Uh, what I show is that we, as consumers, do not only receive electricity, but we, but in our consumption, we allow the network to exist. We allow the grid to exist. Uh, electricity flows. Uh, current flows through us as contact points for uh, electricity. And in a, in, in, quite shortly, because that's my tendency, I, I write short, I write, uh, I do not go into length, but what I'm trying to suggest that it may tell us something about the power of current grids or, or current networks as well. Uh, especially I'm trying to suggest that maybe we can offer a sociological way to think about what psychologists nowadays really call our addiction to the internet or our addiction to the mobile phone, that once we forget the phone at home or if our battery runs out of power, we feel lost, disoriented, stressed, etc. What I try to suggest there is to replace the psychological terminology of addiction with a sociological understanding that to be, to be offline, let's call it uh, in short, and to be offline means to be off the social. And that's the source of our um, discomforts, to say the least, once we are offline, uh, because we do not only consume, we are elements. We become 
strong elements on the network of law of communication, and once we are uh, shut out for whatever reason, it's as if we were kicked out of, uh, of, of society. And that's the, 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 the source of our discomfort. So, uh, if we had time, I uh, would have liked to read even the, uh, the passages that put uh, it in the book. But um, for reasons of time, as you say, I would just refer to, I think it's young, from uh, page, pages 80, 81 of the book. So in this sense, the, uh, this chapter is ambitious in the sense that it says, listen, this book and this chapter is about an electric grid, it's about the 1920s, it can be easily classified as a study of the Middle East, the historical study of the Middle East with political implications, but I admit that my ambition is to offer uh, uh, this sociological way of thinking about grief in general, and about uh, networks in general, <laughs> or whatever it's worth. If you'd like, I mean, if, um, you know, we have another five minutes, if you'd like to, uh, what I can do is I can kind of sum up the last part of the book, if you'd rather talk about that than talk about part two. It's up to you. Mm, I'll go with you. Okay. All right. Well, why don't we continue on and sort of wrap the book up on what I can, and, um, it, but I think it's really, really useful to alert readers and listeners to that um, because this is, I think, one of the many ways that the book is extraordinarily ambitious. And, and I, I really appreciate also your mentioning of the fact that it's also very concisely written, um, which is part of its power. Sure, you want me to read it? I, I'm just in front of my eyes. Sure, if that's if that's what you're um, you feel inspired to do, then this is uh, you know this is your time. So go for it. Okay, here we go. So on page eighty, I write. Now I read. It is by now commonly recognized that attachment to the internet and the mobile phone can become as addictive as that to drugs and alcohol and more generally that individual subjectivity has become radically dependent on the ability to remain online. But the experience of dislocation and loss that arrives with situations of disconnectedness is not merely psychological, it is sociological through and through, an effect of the distinct character of some networks of circulation of some networks of circulation, of which the electric grid is an elementary form. Electric grids and other grids, such telegraph lines and wireless communication networks, are significantly different from railroad and highway or airway systems. On these latter connecting platforms, people are transported from one point to another, and they are the circulating particles. On the electric grid, People are not the circulating particles. Rather, they function as essential contact points. Through their home and office sockets, they are a vital part of the very form and range of the grid, just like street lights or high-tension wires. Another way of saying this is that the grid uses human contact points just as much as humans use the grid. And it is this aspect of becoming a contact point, not simply a moving particle, 
that turned the electric grid or the internet into a potent social force. The sense of exclusion that comes with being unconnected, disconnected, or yet to be connected is beyond the reach of the psychological terminology of addiction. It becomes a matter of being outside society and its normative regimes. Great. Thank you so much, Ronan. I think that's um, a really, it's an example of the eloquence as well of the, um, of the narrative and of the text. So, so I'll just kind of um, briefly um, and very quickly take us through um, the part of the, some of the highlights of the second part of the book. And I'll just stop um, uh, in a moment or two to, to ask you to talk about one aspect of it. So you talked a little bit about public and private um, now, as we come to the second part of the book, we move from light to power, and we move to a context where the demand for public and private light um, at one point in the story can't sustain massive long-term growth of the grid, and, and then the story is very much about expansion of the grid as a process, so the government comes into the story as an electric consumer, and you take us through a, um, a story about the attempt to generate um, rail lines and electric trains. Now, the government contract, though, didn't account for the ensuing substantial growth of the grid. Instead, the grid discovers what, what you call the market um, as the electric company builds new powerhouse in Haifa. Now, this is happening at the same time. There's a huge and unanticipated wave of Jewish immigrants that become that um, start arriving in Palestine in 1924, and this totally transforms the story because in, in a addition of flows of people, we have here coming into this story and coming into the grid flows of capital. We have a new commercial orientation. Um, and it drives not just a transformation in the mode of, of expansion of the grid, but it also drives the production of a kind of divided economy. Now, as you take us into the um, fifth chapter of the book, you lay out um, the emergence of what you call a Jewish economy, um, which is largely instantiated in using power for industry, and an Arab economy, which is largely instantiated in using power for agriculture. These are very different kinds of economies, and the productions of these economies, um, in turn, wind up generating um, and sort of and concretizing these kinds of ethno-national categories that come um, as a result of these or, or along with these processes. So can you talk just a little bit about this, this production of a divided economy? And um, in your opinion, what's crucial for us to understand about this process and about this part of the book and the story in order for us to understand what's most important to you about what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, okay, again, uh the idea or the conceptualization of what uh, uh, took place on the ground in Palestine since uh, roughly mid-1920s has been well documented. Uh, the, the concepts of a dual economy and divided economy uh, have become a very common sociological ways of describing the situation in Palestine by both sociologists and historians. So the novelty is not in describing a, a divided economy. For me, the novelty is in emphasizing uh, how this divided economy became a way of understanding reality. Um, and I emphasize two points. First of all, I point to something that 
I think has been downplayed by other historical accounts, and, and which brings us again to the material infrastructure. That the divided economy could not have become a divided economy uh, if not for uh, uh, the availability of electric power. Okay, because both in the fields of industry and agriculture, what we see is that uh, it is the uh, ability to rely on electric power that uh, generates uh, over time uh, what's called a separate economy in the sense that the Jewish agricultural settlements are relying more and more on electric pumps for uh, irrigation and Jewish small need entrepreneurs are relying on electric power for small industrial workshops uh, disproportionately to uh, the reliance of uh, Arab on electricity. So first of all, quite trivial but still uh, under or almost ignored in the literature is the crucial role that electricity and electrification played in, 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 in creating uh, uh, a divided economy. But this, and the second point, which for me is not less important, that still the idea of divided economy and the category of divided economy and the ability to visualize a separate economy for Jews and Arabs under the same uh, let's say framework of British colonial rule had to do with the, uh, with the differential knowledge and uh, measures and methods of measurement uh, that involved and also relied on what the material infrastructure allowed. Uh, that is what you see clearly is that you see economists relying on statistics, part of the statistics are derived from electric consumption that begin to measure and to focus on, Jew on the Jewish population by far more so than the, on the Arab population. So what you see is the processes of production of knowledge that are not undertaken by the British government, but are undertaken by Jewish agronomes, economists, statisticians, etc., that, uh, again, perform the reality of the separate Jewish economy. So it's not only a material process, but it's also a, the, the production of knowledge that this material process allows for. And I think that's what I'm trying to show in, in the chapter you refer to. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, so now as we come to our conclusion, I just want to mark um, for listeners who might be particularly interested in water um, and its um, and its social formations and historical formations. That the last part of that chapter looks particularly at the ways that irrigation becomes the single largest category of power um, that the company uh, that we're looking at specifies by the early 1930s. And you take us into the story of the the need to develop a national water regime. Water becomes a boundary object in Palestine, and it becomes a boundary object that helps determine immigration policies. Of 
of the colonial government. And it's a really fascinating story of the ways that uh, the regulation of, of Jewish immigration is tied to um, irrigation um, processes and the, the availability specifically of arable land as it's connected to that. So there's this also way in which water um, and processes of irrigation as they're tied into this expansion and process of the electric grid um, becomes another way of uh, concretizing and producing boundaries that don't pre-exist or function separately from these processes of irrigation and uh, water maintenance. And then after this, there's a conclusion that, that moves us out of this particular case and into a broader discussion of actor networks, actor network theory, um, specifically as practical and methodological and conceptual tools. And it's a very rich chapter, and I'll signal that as well for listeners who are particularly interested in um, kind of conceptual discussions of the, the, bent, the opportunities and challenges of this methodology of tracing and telling stories. So, Ronan, this is an extraordinarily rich book. We could have talked at least for another hour, um, if not more, about what's going on here. We only um, barely scratched the surface of what's an extraordinarily concise but extraordinarily rich study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? That's uh, really the dot. For me, there are two layers to the book. One is uh, for people who are interested in the history of uh, Palestine, uh, and the other is for uh, people who are interested in the role of infrastructure in, in general and, and electric grid in particular as, as social formations, not only as as, as uh, platforms upon which social differences are played out, but actually as active agents through which we can see how social formations are created, sustained, and performed. So um, I invite readers uh, with interest uh, in both uh, to take a look. Well, so now that the book is out, and congratulations on what's, uh, by all accounts, a really fascinating and very useful and productive study, what's next for you? Are there any projects that you're working on right now that are currently inspiring you? Yes, actually, I'm working these days on a project that has to do with our changing perceptions of uh, health and death. I'm running an ethnographic study at a big hospital. And I'm looking at, uh, I'm particularly interested in the field which is called preventive medicine. And uh, through my ethnography, I'm trying to uh, look at the way that the distinction between healthy and unhealthy are uh, shifting and blaring over time and how the overall effect is uh, new regimes of self-management about our health. So I'm Hmm. nominally in a a different area, but I think that I can trace the same methodological logic in trying to uh, trace how perceptions uh, change uh, about now the now the, the the protagonists are healthy 
uh, unhealthy and how the boundaries are performed, shifting all the time between health and sickness, so to speak. Uh, to put it in one sentence, what tentatively I begin to see is how uh, under modern conditions of preventive maintenance, so to speak, we are gradually transformed from being healthy to being only so far healthy, provisionally healthy, um, as, uh, as a form of subjectivity. So that's what I'm interested in nowadays, and I'll see where it takes me. Well, that's another fascinating project. So I'll look forward to talking with you about that as well when that comes out. And in the meantime, thank you so much for making the time and for a really stimulating and really fantastic book. Um, I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed talking with you about it. So thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.